Now, for those of you who are new to Sunday mornings in Chalmers, or perhaps visiting today, we've been looking together at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah describes a significant period of history in the life of God's people, the restoration and the reformation of God's people after the exile in Babylon. Now, today we return to a passage we looked at briefly last week, chapter 12, verse 27, through to chapter 13, verse 3. Now, this little passage that we'll read in a moment describes a great day of celebration and commitment amongst God's people in light of all that had happened. What had happened? Well, God had brought them back out of exile in Babylon to Jerusalem to the promised land. The temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The walls of the city had been rebuilt. The city had been repopulated. The land repossessed. True kingdom witness had been restored. God's people are once again in God's place for them under His rule in Jerusalem, in Zion, a city on a hill, a light to the nations, pointing to the one true and living God, the gateway to heaven. And in light of all of that, a great day of celebration and commitment amongst God's people. Chapter 12, 27 to 13, 3. And we come back to these verses this week to see what they teach us about worship. Now, before we read the passage, let me read from Raymond Brown's commentary on Nehemiah and his excellent introduction to these verses. This is what he says. Nehemiah's vivid narrative or description of this service of thanksgiving that we are about to read presents us with important biblical guidelines regarding the nature, centrality, and purpose of worship. This account of a biblical celebration of adoration, thanksgiving, and dedication has been preserved by Nehemiah as a pattern for us to follow, but not exactly. It invites study, not with a view to reproducing it item by item, but to discover what was intended by its different elements and how, supported by other passages of Scripture, we might identify appropriate patterns of worship in the contemporary uh, church. And when you read an introduction like that, and you're under pressure to write a sermon, you can do one of two things. You can spend a day rewriting it, or you can just quote it. So there we go. Uh, so what we're going to learn here is really instructive, but we don't just take it lock, stock, and barrel and put it into our context, as you'll see when we read it. So let's read God's Word, Nehemiah 12, 27 to 33. I've been practicing the names this week. There are 67 of them here, so bear with me. Let's uh, read this, 1227. Do follow with me uh, on your phone or with the Bible in your hands as I read. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages 
of the Nephtaphathites, and from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, or campsites, literally. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people in the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, son of Zachur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Mililiah, Gilaliah, Maiah, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hananai, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to uh, the north. One went south, one went north. This is where surround sound was invented. And I, that's Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks, they'd come together, stood in the house of God, the temple. And I and half of the officials with me and the priests, Elikim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eleniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonahan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Amen. And may God bless to us this reading from his word. I think there's a fight going on next door. Let's pray. Our Father, please teach us what true worship is 
and help us to do to be what your word says it is in every area of our lives. Thank you for your word, the help that it is to us, the rule of our faith in our life. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, our Savior, in whose name and in his spirit we worship you. Amen. Now, inside the service sheet, you have some headings, and please keep that Bible passage open in front of you. Let me begin by defining Reformed worship. What is Reformed worship? Now, the word Reformed in this context simply means worship that is informed by or patterned on the Word of God. In periods of reformation in the history of the church, when the church comes back to what it should be, at the heart of these periods of spiritual renewal and reformation is the Bible back at the heart of the church. And putting the Bible back in the heart of the church means, amongst many other things, that our life as a church, what we do and what we don't do, is determined by Scripture. So, reformed worship is worship that is patterned according to the Word of God. But what is worship? Now, we use the language of worship to describe what we do when we meet together as a church, like we are doing now. So, we might say we gather together for worship. We use the language of worship often to refer to the times of singing in our services. For example, let's worship God as we sing praise to Him. As a child growing up in church, uh, our minister, whose name was James Philip, or definitely Mr. Philip, he would walk up the steps to the pulpit every Sunday and begin every service with these words, let us worship God, singing together from paraphrase number, and then we would sing. Now, people point out, and rightly, and rightly, that the New Testament uses worship language to describe the whole of our life in obedience to God and to Jesus. So, not what we're doing here, just, but the whole of our life. Now, perhaps the clearest and most helpful text in that regard is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that for us. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that's all of you, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And what does that mean? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So a transformed life or a transformed church life or obedience to the will of God, doing what God's Word says Monday through Sunday is, according to Paul in Romans, worship. That's how the New Testament uses worship language. It is about the whole of life given to God 
as a sacrifice of praise. Now, it seems to me there are two dangers. The greater danger is that we narrow our understanding of worship to what happens when we meet together on Sundays, or narrow it even further to what happens when we sing together on Sundays. That is the greater danger. Why is it dangerous? Well, simply because it robs us of so much. It robs us of a life of worship, of the ability every moment of every day, because the Spirit of Jesus lives within us to worship God. And it's dangerous to narrow a definition of worship because it compartmentalizes our Christian life to Sundays. So if our default is to think that what is going on here now is worship, and that is all that worship is, then it kind of lets me off the hook tomorrow. Tomorrow in the eyes of God, when I seek to do the will of God, and Mondays are harder days for ministers than Sundays to do the will of God, is worship. So the greater danger is that we narrow our understanding of worship. But there is another danger. Having got back on the horse, having recovered a right biblical all-of-life understanding of worship, we need to be careful not to fall off the horse on the other side and give the impression or think that we worship God in every area of life except when we meet together on Sundays. That would be absurd. So let's not be daft. Let us worship God on Mondays, and let us worship God when we meet together on Sundays. And it's not about balance. It's not about kind of balance. It's uh, about both. It's not the same as seeking a balance. You want to hold on to both. And this passage has stuff to teach us about both, about the church meeting together to worship God on Sundays and about our life of worship as a church community out of Sundays, Monday to Saturday. Just let me say something about that. We don't stop being a church tomorrow. I mean, we're out there in our individual lives, but we're a church out there, the community out there. We just come together as a community on Sundays. That's why we have our small groups in the church. What are they for? They're there to support us out there Monday through Saturday as we worship. They're there to encourage us in our Christian walk. They're there to enable us to share our faith. Now, last thing I want to say by way of a definition of worship, yes, it is about our life as individuals, but also about our life as a community, our corporate life as a church. When we meet together on Sundays to worship God, we do so together. The reason for that is that the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but to one another. And when we join up with a local church, we express both a restored relationship to God and a stored relationship to our fellow humanity. There's a world of a difference between me, as I sometimes do, being in this building on my own, singing, as I sometimes do, 
and us all being here together singing. The writer to the Hebrews says, do not neglect to meet together. And in Ephesians, Paul exhorts us to address, this is what you've just been doing, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So here's the orientation of corporate singing in a church is adoration to God, of course, but it's almost as if Paul encourages us to look around and look each other in the face. And I get to see your faces when you sing, and most of them, some of them are gloomy. But it does mean no end of good to watch you sing to me that I might be edified and encouraged. Now, the corporateness of worship is so important. Now, let's consider now what we can learn from these verses about the times we meet together as a church. So, this is what we're doing now. So, what does this passage teach us about this thing we're doing now? And it teaches us, or it gives us in the context of Nehemiah, uh, clear principles. Now, Nehemiah chapters 8 through 12, and you can flick through them, are all about the people of God meeting together. The, every one of these chapters, the people meet together. Yep. Corporate. They met together, and we meet together in local churches. That's what we're doing here. And think back over these chapters in Nehemiah. Chapter 8, the people of God met together under the Word. Chapter 9, the people of God met together and prayed. And here in chapter 12, the people of God meet together and sing. The word, prayer, and singing. Now, that's not all we do when we meet together on Sundays, but these are the key priorities. And we mustn't let them be squeezed out by anything else. We meet together on Sundays and listen attentively to the Word of God, recognizing its authority in our corporate life, which is exactly what we're doing now. We pray as Davi led us with humble, repentant hearts, confessing our sin. We appeal to God for the needs of our world, the church and the world in our lives. And we sing in adoration to God and to encourage one another. Now, there is a lot of singing going on in this chapter. These amazing choirs, one marching around the walls one way, the other marching the other way, meeting at the temple, and then everyone, men, women, boys and girls, joining in the singing. It must have been amazing. Just a little footnote. In the New Testament, reference to singing is in the context of local churches, mostly, of a community of faith singing together, people who can sing and people who can't sing awfully well. Everyone, their praises blended to a perfect harmony in heaven. So the emphasis is on all of us singing like we've been doing. But it doesn't mean to say that choirs are banned in the New Covenant. There are contexts where choirs are wonderful. Special occasions like Christmas or Easter, they are a wonderful blessing. Now, there's a lot of effort goes into a choir singing as well as this choir did. Uh, they had campsites, they had practices, they had all sorts of stuff going on here. And there is a lot of effort that goes into our choir practice for the special occasions when we have them like Christmas or Easter. And we would be less blessed without them. 
They have their place, and we value them. But you couldn't do it every week, and you shouldn't do it every week, because most of the time, not all of the time, we sing together psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, why sing? That's a good question. I've been searching for that little paragraph in my Bible commentaries. Why do we sing at all? None of them give you the answer. Why, why is it we sing so much? Well, it is a natural human response that embraces our whole being. So what's prime time telly on a Saturday night? For those of you who aren't reading Nehemiah in preparation for Sunday. Two hours last night, the voice. Why? Because singing is something that gets right to the heart of our human emotions. Singing. It embraces our whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We often talk about affections in preaching. And what that means is that you don't simply convey the content of a Bible passage when you preach. You feel it, and you convey that feeling as you preach. So if I send you home this morning, having failed to sense and feel the rejoicing that is all over this passage, and I failed. And singing in church is a way for all of us to engage with the spiritual affections. And singing is a gift from God that enables us to do that. So when we just sang this, the power of the cross, you could see, I could see and you could experience and feel our affections, our spiritual connection with what we are singing. It's not emotions. It's affections. It's different. Singing is a wonderful and rich gift that we should embrace and enjoy as Christians. And one of the things a local church does is that it points to what it will be like in the new creation, where there will be lots of singing. When we meet together on Sundays, when we sing, we want, and rightly so, the services to be appointed a picture, a glimpse of the glory of the new creation. And the book of Revelation, which points us to the new creation, is chock full of songs full of singing. You might remember when we studied Ephesians, the living church on earth is to point people to eternity. A local church like Chalmers, a living community of Christians, is to show people what eternity will be like, a pale reflection for sure, but nonetheless a reflection. And so when we stand up, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are doing something that we will do for all eternity. So much of what we do in our life will not be in eternity. But when we stand up and sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, the great Redeemer's praise, we will do that for 10,000 times, 10,000 years. Now, when I was in primary school, there were three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. You're not sharp this morning, are you? It always struck me that it was somewhat educationally compromised that children all over the country grew up thinking that writing and arithmetic begin with R. <laughs> You're awake now. Here are three R's that begin with R that should define our corporate gatherings not just the singing bit, 
but the whole of what's going on here from about 9.30 to 2 o'clock when the building is clear again. Reverence, remembering, and rejoicing. Reverence. Now, by reverence, I mean simply seriousness, the attitude we have and bring to our corporate gatherings, to our Sunday services when we meet together. So verses 27 to 29 in our passage, there is a whole lot of careful planning. Verse 30, there is ritual purification. All of this suggests reverence, taking God seriously. So what is our approach to meeting together on Sundays? Is it serious or casual? And we're not talking about what you wear. Preachers need to be very careful here not to unload their hobby horses. You can put on a suit and come to church with a heart that is totally disengaged. Equally, you can come with shorts and a t-shirt and your heart can be totally disengaged. Reverence is not about social conventions apart from the need for us to respect and value the preferences of others before our own. Reverence is about the state of our mind and hearts before God, taking God seriously. And that means preparing for Sundays. For those of us who are preaching and leading, to prepare what we preach and to prepare to lead. The people who set the church up on a Saturday are a blessing to the rest of us who come to the church prepared. I wanted to really encourage, and the elders agreed with this, that we don't set the church up on a Sunday. It just means that we're less frazzled on a Sunday. Some of you as parents are very frazzled on a Sunday. The ones I enjoy watching come to church the best are the ones who have just managed to learn to ride a bike. And you can picture them a mile away at home saying, Mommy, Mommy, can we cycle to church? And then at the end of a long battle, they agree. And then, I can do it, Mommy. I can do it. Don't touch me. Don't push me. And 45 minutes later, some bedraggled parent arrives (laughs) with their kid on their bike. And that's real life. It's real life. But we need to try and prepare to come. Practically, what does that mean? It means that we might do stuff on a Saturday that we can leave on a Sunday morning. Maybe reading the Bible passage we're going to study, praying about it. When I was an assistant in St. Catharines, as it was, about 100 years ago, I had a little group of people that I would email on a Saturday night with the content of what I was preaching on the Sunday. And it blessed me when they prayed for me. But they kept saying to me it blessed them because they knew before they came what the passage was saying. And we're not going to do that all of the time. But a little bit of the time is helpful. And then in our services, like now, the content of what we sing, for example, should express an attitude of reverence to God. The writer to Hebrews puts it like this, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. We come with reverence and awe before an almighty God. He is holy. He is pure. He is almighty. I mean, if Jesus was up here, as he one day will be in a new creation, we're not going to rush up to him and and casually 
you know, give him a high five. We're going to fall at his feet. And maybe put our hands where the nails were. With awe and reverence. Secondly, remembering that day in Jerusalem when the two choirs were dispatched to march round the walls, one clockwise, one anti-clockwise, the very act of walking round the walls would have reminded them of what God had done for them their recent past. After all, the walls that they walked around had been smashed to bits a century earlier. Remember Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, who rode round the walls on his horse in the dead of night, and, and there was hardly any wall. It must have just been amazing for Nehemiah as he walked round that wall behind this great choir to think, God, it's amazing what you've done. This wall is back up. And then when they saw the temple, the temple was rebuilt. And then they looked around and the city was full of people again, remembering what God had done for them in their recent past. And then, remembering much further back into their long history, the reference in the text to King David, to Solomon, to the great days of the past, to Solomon's first dedication of the temple, very much like what is recorded here, remembering salvation history. Remembering salvation history. Think of the prayer in chapter 9. What is it doing? Remembering salvation history. Remembering God's mercy. When we meet together on a Sunday, we remember We have our enacted dramas. We gather around a table that we might remember the Lord's Supper and through that, his death on the cross. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every Sunday when we meet together in some way or other in prayer and singing, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And of course, and rightly, so many of the psalms, hymns, and songs we do are about remembering. Now, rightly, a church needs to look forward, to move forward. But we look forward by looking back. The big, big disaster for a church And we just listen to the rhetoric around the church in our country in these days. We need to be progressive. And the problem is the church moves forward and lets go of its roots. We need to hold on to the apostolic gospel. We need to hold on to Calvary. We need to hold on to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And we stand in the present. Or sit in the present as we are now. And we remember that we might be strengthened for the future. Listen to some of the remembering and salvation story that we have sung today. Listen to what you've sung. From age to age he stands. And time is in his hands. Beginning and the end. How great is our God. Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Make known his might, his deeds the arm has done. His mercy sure from age to age to age. The same, the Holy One, the Lord, the Mighty One. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me 
how he left the realms of glory for the cross of Calvary. And what is that song doing as it engages our affections? It's taking us in mind and heart and soul and will to the cross. And the story that we are singing of is my story. So another hymn that's in my mind. This is my story. This is my song. I would change it a little bit. This is our story. This is our song, praising our Savior all the day long. Or, oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. And that hymn with its music, it's not just singing, it's the music that runs with the singing, almost as it were moves us to the cross, remembering and then rejoicing. If there is one note that sounded in these verses more than any other, it is rejoicing. You cannot miss it. It's everywhere. Verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites at all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres. There's just a proof text that you're allowed to have drums because cymbals are attached to drums. We need a harpist. I mean, there's so much nonsense in churches. Should we shouldn't have drums? You know, it's just nonsense. Of course you should if somebody can play them well. It's just... It's all there. The only thing that's not there... Well, they're all there. They're all there. They're all there. Verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And that's, of course, emphasized right through the New Testament. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. Rejoicing, thanksgiving, real joy in our gatherings. How would I describe the real joy in our gatherings or what we're aiming for? I describe it like this, sheer joy. Sheer joy as to who we are in Christ and all the privileges of salvation that are ours, the glorious eternity that is ahead of us. And that is reflected in our singing. Now listen really carefully to this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Or, the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again. Is that just saying, oh, it's lovely and wonderful to be in the church, and it's a sunny day, and there are nice windows, and let's just escape from the reality of life? Listen to what the sing, the song, it's time to sing your song, whatever may pass. And whatever may befall me, let me be singing when this day is done. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, it's almost as if the writer is singing this through gritted teeth. I will keep on singing. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing, unending, 10,000 years and then for... Now that is either completely crass or profoundly wonderful. 
It's not superficial rejoicing, is it? The psalm is about joy in dark days and joy in our dying day. Here's another one. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. The joy that seekest me through pain. It's not crass. The kind of singing we do in church should be singing that brings tears to our eyes and joy to our faces. Reverence, remembering, rejoicing. These are the marks that should define our corporate meetings, our services. Now, very, very helpfully, Nehemiah's description of the activity of that day does not stop there. We're nearly done. We're trying to speed up our sermons. My lovely wife did a spreadsheet last Sunday night of the length of our sermons. Because many of you very gently were suggesting that they were creeping out a little. You said that you liked them, but they were a little long. <laughs> well, um, I, was, I was at the wrong end of the list. My average is 44 minutes. I have long readings, though. So we are trying to shorten them, which is wise. So I'm doing well. So I'm not done yet, but I nearly am. And we're, I just keep checking my watch. <laughs> Spreadsheet, somebody else is going to be top tonight. Now, Nehemiah doesn't stop, though, with this wonderful, wonderful singing. There are two little bits that follow, which are great. Uh, And the reason for that is that worship, as we saw, is not just about our times that we gather together. It's not just about Sundays, much as we love them. And I hope you love Sundays. I love Sundays. They're knackering for me, but I love Sundays. I'm much, much better off on a Sunday night. That's why I walk the dog every night in the hills. Sunday night is the best night, by far, after a Sunday But it's also about tomorrow, about life, the functioning, the working of our church community Monday through Saturday when we're out there in the world encouraging and inspiring each other in day-to-day life. And it's not just about the high days, the grace of great celebration in church life. It's about the grind and the graft. That is worship just as much. It's true on a local scale. It's true on a bigger scale, a bigger canvas, periods of renewal, revival that come to church Very often in history, though on a bigger or local scale, periods of renewal fade out because all that is focused on is the celebration and the experience and not the graft and the grit and the impact on our day-to-day lives. Sundays should be a catalyst for the transformation of Mondays. Now, Nehemiah's text brings us gloriously back down to earth, but it's not a letdown. Coming down to earth in the Bible is never a letdown. It's a liberation. It's a liberation to a whole life of worship. Two areas. One, the church giving sacrificially. On that day, verse 44. Notice, on that day, on that same day, on that same day of wonderful celebration, they went home and they gave their tithes and their offerings, giving sacrificially to the work of the kingdom. God's kingdom advances when God's people give sacrificially and generously. Last week I spoke about the Atkinsons, the Batlocks, and people responded. 
You know, it doesn't take much to get these guys into China, really. Let's not burden them with five years of endless fundraising to do it. Let's just get them there. And we are going to, I think, God willing. All of the people give themselves time and money and gifts and all that. And then the church living distinctively, chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel. And the point here is not racial separation. It's just distinctiveness. God's people then were a nation. They were to be distinct in the way they lived morally, marriage, all of these issues from the world. And it's almost as if they went home from that wonderful, wonderful church service with this mega choir here and this mega choir, and they sat down around the dinner table, and they read the Word of God, and they knew they had to sort some stuff out in their lives. That's worship. Worship, worship, holiness, purity. And you know what I know, that's where the rubber hits the road. Holiness in Clive, that is worship, that is worship. Now let me conclude. What is the end in view for us as Christians? Why a life of worship? Why come along to a church like this every week and sing your heart out? Why graft on a Monday through a Saturday for a life of holiness and of purity because it worships God? Why unburden your struggles to your small group leader or to your mate that they might pray for you, that together we might be a a corporate community worshiping God in the way that we live? Why, why do we keep on going? Because one day we will live in bodies that are free of sin. And we will not gather to worship with others once a week like this. We will worship God in song and in praise forevermore. So keep on coming, because that day is coming faster than we might think. And what else is in view? Who else is in view? Chapter 12, verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, the women and the children also, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I wanted to drag that Australian couple in this morning. I wanted them to experience the praising of God's people and the presence of God with His people, which itself, if you walk into this place on a Sunday, our aim should be that people know that the living God is here. And we can show them the gateway to heaven. I did make sure they heard you singing. Surely we want it to be known far and wide across this city. That Chalmers is a place, a community where the living God can be found in the midst of his people. That when people encounter this community on a Sunday or on a Monday or on a Friday at the sports quiz, they will encounter the living Christ. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, my gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of 
thy name. Now, it might well be that in the very singing of this hymn from our hearts, that someone here who is not a Christian will hear our singing and sense that God is in it and be drawn to Jesus under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's pray and then let's sing. Father God, we thank you for this encouraging passage about what true worship is. We pray that we will get it right, not one or the other, not a balance, but both. And we pray, Lord, that we will sing now. Sing songs of remembrance and proclamation. And we pray that people who aren't Christians will sense in the singing the presence of God amongst his people. We ask that in his name. Amen.